Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Good evening. Uh, heads up for tomorrow night. There's a fresh outsider tale with Jared Hindmarsh. These things go straight into an archive called the Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders Archive. Go to the webpage. All those archives are on the right-hand side for your listening pleasure. And we're proud to announce the... Uh, Outsiders Archive is totally and utterly complete, which is marvellous. It's a grim tale tomorrow night. People trying to survive in the desert, World War II, and a Kiwi leading the march. It's called Moore's March, and they very, very nearly didn't make it. Water was gone, and they knew it was just a matter of time now before they died of thirst, unless someone could find help. That actually been reported presumed killed, missing in action, so there's no one even looking for them, Graham. Tenth day or so, the sound of an aircraft engine. He swung around in a wide loop, and over them he dropped a small packet of food and a bottle of lemonade that he had in the plane. Now, they never found the food, and would you believe it, the cork came out of the bottle when it landed on the sand. There was only one centimetre of lemonade left in the bottom. Oh, dear. Yeah, fabulous story. World War II, the Desert Patrol. New Zealander, Ron Moore. It's called Moore's March. That's after 11. We're filling up the Shipwreck Tales archive as we go as well while Grant Smithies is away. Um, it's going down a treat tonight after 11. The story of the Empress of Ireland rammed by a Scandinavian ship and sunk. And the Empress is a massive affair. This happened in Canada, St. Lawrence Seaway. Next up, though, we go to the movies. James Crook, all about Mission Impossible and all about the big shark carry-on. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Sharks, sharks, big bloody sharks. It's uh, almost a kind of franchise. Do something with a shark. It started with Jaws. Was there a Jaws too, James Groot? Oh, was there a Jaws too? There was a Jaws the Revenge oh, where the true. shark remembered uh, who it was going after. I think Michael Caine it was in that. Yeah, that was, that was Jaws 4. Oh. Of course, Jaws 3D was part of the 3D revolution of the 1980s. Is that the second 3D revolution before the third 3D revolution that we're now just out of? I well, can't remember. What jaw are we up to? Uh, I think we got to four. Oh, I think okay. they stopped after right. Jaws the Revenge. Um, but look, there have been a number of shark movies, shark franchises. Um, of course, Sharknado is uh, generally considered what the nadir of it. We, the, the point at which shark movies jump the shark, oh, no, of I course, think, in reference to Happy Days. Marvellous. Yeah, this, that's, I think it may be the pinnacle of... Um, Western wasting your time just on something that's... It's like Millhouse from The Simpsons. What movie do you want to see? Tornadoes with Sharks. That's yep. brilliant. We've been and we've done it. It's like the height of the Roman Empire. It's downhill from now on. <laughs> I believe that, that that's now come to an end as well. Uh, I think it stopped at about four or five. 
Um, but, yeah, we're talking about shark movies, of course, because there was one that was shot mostly here. Had a lot of Chinese money involved, so they had to go and take some, uh, you know, shots over there in terms of exteriors. But it was mainly filmed in a tank in Kumio. Oh, go, Kumio. <laughs> Which I love. Marvellous. Um, so, yeah, Jason Statham, uh, Li Bingbing, which is, who is one of the big Chinese actresses, um, Ran Wilson, um, Cliff, Cliffy Curtis is even in there, oh, getting cool. to keep his own accent and ethnicity this time. That's oh, nice. Lovely, isn't it? Although they are actors, they should be able to do both. True, but, but it's nice to have him recognised, yeah. you know, for not being some kind of Middle Eastern terrorist. <laughs> Good one. Well, one of the solutions... Or Colombian drug lord. Right. Uh, One of the solutions for, I suppose, maybe a a slightly lurching franchise, and that's a big fish with teeth, is just make the fish bigger. And that's what we've got. The Megalodon, which was a real animal, um, uh, luckily a long time ago extinct. Do we... Is it like the moa? (laughs) Yeah. But but obviously it was around way way before yeah, the moa, it has yeah. to be said. But yeah, it's it's the the giant of sharks, if you like. Yeah. Um, it, it it is a descendant of it. There are a lot of people who debate its actual genealogy and etc. Uh, etc. Et oh, who cares? It's, it's big and it's got teeth. Yeah, exactly. This one, of course, has the, the as with all great. Uh, horror B-movie nightmare scenarios has this absolutely insane scientific premise that there's somewhere near the Marianas Trench there's been this layer of ice which has been impenetrable for millions of years and down below it is this whole other world with um, you know teeming life that we've never seen and that has never seen us and includes a a megalodon or two Um, and naturally you know scientists being of the Jurassic Park variety, they cross that line, break it up, yeah. and something comes back with them. Yeah, the shark, the Meg. Exactly. But, of course, we're also talking action movie here, so that means that great um, Commonwealth Games diver, Jason Statham, is uh, is there to answer the call and save everybody. But, of course, his ex-wife is one of the people who needs rescuing. He's already been traumatised by a previous incident where he faced down this beastie that no one believed existed, uh-huh. and so he's got to prove his worth and be jaded at the same time. Look, if anybody can pull it off in the modern age... Well, it's very, much like, the, the, the very much like the first Jaws and uh, yeah, uh, the, right. the wreck of the Indianapolis. Oh, the sharks. Yeah. No, there is very much that kind of feeling about it. Um, The other thing was that it's based on a book that's about 20 years old, and it was going to get made about 20 years ago, but then some dastardly rival studio came up with a movie called Deep Blue Sea, which had um, genetically enhanced sharks, which then started uh, attacking people like Samuel L. Jackson. And uh, it's famous for one great shock moment because nobody expected it to happen. There aren't too many of those in this. Everything is kind of telegraphed from the get-go as to what's going to happen. So this definitely is that old-school kind of Jaws slash Piranha, you know, beast movie where you just know there's going to be a small child and a small dog involved at some point. Oh, all right. Okay, (laughs) I'm channeling my inner 14-year-old. Does anyone get bit in half and does the guts come out? Uh, there's a little bit of that, but of course we've moved. I hate to say it, but we live in more PC times, Graham. Oh, get out! So you, in order to make all your money, particularly when you've ploughed hundreds of millions into a project like this, you have to make it PG or M at the max. Oh, uh, and kitties. What was Jaws? I can't have been 
very old when I saw Jaws well, and it ruined sure. my summer at Waipu Cove? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's been an ear most of its life. It might but be one of those. I was allowed got... to go. Well, yeah, it would. Yeah. Oh, um, anyway. and people got bitten in half there. That's true. That's true. Okay. I'm not sure of its actual history, but it's always it's suggested that it's always been an M. Those those senses. Okay. The 70s were a different time, Graham. Yeah. Just look at Watership Down. Yeah, yeah. You've seen the movie. You've heard the song. Now try the stew. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> How many children's childhoods did that destroy? Yeah, Brothers Grimm. We could go on. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, and when oh, I just saw some Jaws action, the first movie, uh, a little while ago, and gosh. Isn't CG amazing? <laughs> because it's a <laughs> shitty shark, isn't it? Well, he had it was, Spielberg had all sorts of problems with that shark. I mean, you know, it was a famously troubled kind of a movie. But it he did the job to, at the time, though. It was well, fine. That's the thing. He managed to turn it around into yeah. something believable. But yeah, we just laugh at the shark now, don't we? Yeah. But he. But having said that, he he did find magical ways of. Uh, keeping the shark out of the movie as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, true. Oh, <laughs> look, it was a well-made thing. He's no dummy. There's great tension. And uh, did it work? Hell yes. All right, Meg, Megalodon, what do we go and watch it for? <laughs> Jason Statham going nuts. Okay. And punching a shark. <laughs> and punching a gigantic shark. And I take the shark. The shark's as big as, like, three double-decker buses. Uh, 75 feet or something. 35 like feet. That. Is the shark any good on the screen? Oh, look, it's like any other CGI shark. It, it doesn't look too ropey, but it's it's not great. I still Barry, I still think Barry Humphreys provided the best animated shark in Finding Nemo with oh, Bruce. Oh, yes, of course. All right. Now, who would have thunk it all those years ago when this was on the telly? One of the finest themes, too. Great percussion by Lalo Schifrin. It's a franchise. It's a modern movie, massive successful, massively successful, big screen franchise. Mission Impossible, James. Yeah, and look, they've. I mean, th this was dead in the water. What? Near 20 years ago, so they had a couple of stabs at it. They kept on changing director. John Woom, the um, famous Asian director made one about 2000 which I think was set in Sydney amongst other places and that was awful mm. and people said that was the end of it then they got genuine fix-it man and J.J. Abrams who of course has uh, attacked Star Wars and Star Trek since then um, and he came and fixed it up a bit but in the last couple have been bloody great mm. they've, they've probably outbonded bonded outborned born which I think nobody expected back, you know, sort of in the early 2000s, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. And, cr and really, although his character is particularly bland in this, it's been the making of Do Tom Cruise. It's really kind of kept him afloat when anything else he's tried has kind of sunk badly, like last year's Mummy yeah. reboot. You know, it, it, his Ethan Hunt is just the perfect kind of bland everyman who can do these amazing stunts. And the thing is that Cruise certainly appears to do them all himself, including breaking ankles and things. Yeah. Uh, in, in praise of an older generation, 
actually. Uh, maybe you could, uh, everyone says golden age of TV is the golden age that they particularly like might best. But um, it's amazing that there's latent heat left in this concept of uh, quite a few things. You look at James Bond, still rock and Mission Impossible. Who would have, as I said, it's I find it surprising, but it was a great idea for a TV show, and um, there's still enough meat on that bone for it to. It's it's eternally a good idea. Well, I guess it's that whole spy thing, isn't it? To be fair, the plots can get a bit ropey these days. And in fact, I think I noticed that the spoof series, John Key's favourite, Johnny English, is coming out with essentially the same plot that was the like the Man from Uncle movie, the, the Mission Impossible one before this, yeah. and at least one or two of the other kind of spy movies or franchises. You know, now it's always someone's stolen the MacGuffin that has the identity of the world's spies on it, and somebody's got to retri- retrieve it. But the Mission Impossible movies aren't really about the plot. They're more about the globetrotting and about the amazing set pieces. And I think the thing here was we were brilliantly sold the dummy by Hollywood and by, I guess, the New Zealand Film Commission. Everybody thought that what was shot in New Zealand for this film was going to be some boring thing involving a prison in Iraq, right? Turns out that was a load of baloney. They were busy shooting like a 25-minute helicopter chase from like Milford Sound to Lake Wanaka. Oh. And it's the set piece climax of the entire film. The cheeky buggers. Wow. And that's another one for the botanists, isn't it? Well, that's true. And the, and I think the sneaky thing was they didn't need a lot of dock permission to do it because they're in the air. Right, right, exactly. You're not going to trample on a, on, on, on a galaxid. Okay, um, fabulous. I just want to give a okay, Mission Impossible. Where you don't do it out of ten, so just tell it. Why, why am I going going to go and see it or not? I think. Well, I mean, part of it is just for some of the the, the breathtaking variety of stunts, really, and it's it's hard to be impressed by these sort of things these days. Yes, there is still the rubber Scooby-Doo masks kind of thing, except the good guys use them here, not the bad guys. Mm. Um, but I also think as a showcase of New Zealand's landscape, this is amazing. And it's funny that the Meg should be the movie that was mostly shot here, but you wouldn't know it. Right. I mean, with Mission Impossible, you definitely know it. There's a, there is a sneaky bit where it looks like it's still New Zealand and then it's the other side of the world. I think it's part of Iceland or Norway or something. But having said that, for uh, this, this is the thing that Tourism New Zealand should be using in spades. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, good one. Well, it's always nice to see a bit of the uh, home country. But, yeah, it's surprising that uh, with Meg, where you could have had a big bloody shark with people screaming at Waihee Beach, couldn't you? Oh, you see, you had to use, what is it, one of the busiest beaches in the world, which is somewhere in China. Oh. That's where the money comes from. Okay. Um, We, of course, are doing another Chinese co-production, which has just got underway here at the moment, which is the live-action version of Mulan. Oh, Okay. Which is busy shooting back at those studios up in Auckland and apparently somewhere in the South Island as well. All right. Uh, keep your powder dry on that one. I just want to yeah. just give a salute to Lalo Schifrin. He's tremendous. Uh, he's still alive. He's born in 1932, so uh, he's getting on. Um, done a lot of great music for TV and film, Into the Dragon, but you know, Mission Impossible is his most famous yeah. thing. But I just want to salute. These were the days when it was kind of like no expense spared. I'm talking about the TV series, uh, Mission Impossible. When it came to the music, 
all of the interstitial stuff, you know, the background, it was all done by Lalo Schifrin. All of the, these sort of things. You know, is it the red wire? Is it the yellow wire? Um, that sort of thing. Barney's out there with a pair of pliers or a soldering iron and doing something in a duct in the ceiling of a... And he loved to do the jazz thing as well, didn't yeah. he? I mean, I mean, apparently he did things like Duty Harry. I was just reading that he um, he had a score for The Exorcist that was rejected. Wouldn't that have been interesting, rather than the old Tubular Bells thing? Although I love the way Tubular Bells work. Wow, this is true. Yeah, yeah, it was putting something that quite delightful that made it sounded spooky. Yeah, all right. I reckon it's one of the grander TV themes that uh, have been done. It always sounds better off the TV. Um, I mean, taken from the TV rather than on some fancy compact disc. It's never the same. So here it is in fuzzy mono, as you would have heard it in the day, the original Mission Impossible TV theme. Gorgeous. Lalo Schifrin, take a bow. James Crook, you may as well too. Thank you. Cheers. Max Cryer next. Interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace. Words Max Cryer, hello, Max. Hello, good evening. You doing all right? Yes, because it's word reaches me that we're approaching spring. Oh, yeah. And that's always a good feeling. Yeah, There's already the newspapers have got pictures of lambs bouncing along. Mm. Mind you, only one or two so far. Yeah. But then there's the statutory unexpected cold snap. Oh, it's really? always called an unexpected cold oh. snap. It happens every year. Is that so? Yeah. It's unexpected nature, I think, is not quite deserved. Or it fills a gap in the newspaper. Yeah, that'll be <laughs> it. If you want to fill a gap in Max's inbox, that is for questions to do with the English language, words and their origin, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's a clearly labelled email form there. You can leave a message on Facebook, but if you'd like to write a letter, still there is some charm in a letter, I think. That is P.O. Box... What is... I've, I've always had it in my head. Now I've got a block. Yes, you have. P.O. Box 800, I think it is. Well, I... I better check before I say that. Yeah, I hope <laughs> you... Well, have a check during the commercial break. Tell the listeners... Don't double eight zero P.O. P.O. Box double eight zero Simons Street, Auckland. S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. I found the right file in my brain. Next week I'm going to write on a big poster and stick it on your studio wall. <laughs> Thank you. That would be very useful. Uh, first up, though, our word of the week is plastic. Plastic. Well, the word comes from ancient Greek. The word plastikos 
which means to form or reshape. Now, hundreds of years later, it began to be used referring to substances and also surgery where basic matter could be molded. You see, the clue is reshape or mold. So if the, um, the manufacturer or the surgery involved making a new shape and retaining it. Now, in English, originally the word plastic was a noun, meaning able to be formed, and the word was first used in 1855 when a man named Alexander Parks invented something to replace ivory, and it was known as parkasine. I don't know where he used it. <laughs> Parkinson, you Parkinson, like that? I yeah. like the, uh, I'm writing that down. I love using antiquated words. Park E S I N E. Parkinson. Parkinson. I have a vague idea that he used it for piano keys. Right. Which have used... you told the Department of Conservation they've got all sorts of trouble with ivory on theirs? Well, it's not their. Not the, but Parkinson is not their problem because you see, it's invented. Mm. But um, Parkinson didn't really take off. And after 1909, there came Bakelite which was much more successful, and that lasted for decades. Don't tell me that was made by Mr Baker. No, it wasn't, but oh. so, there are some of us who still remember Bakelite. Bakelite was impressive. It was based on phenol and formaldehyde. It was totally synthetic. It was not based on any natural material. And what we call plastic nowadays is mainly created from ingredients from petroleum out of the earth. And notice this carefully. What is known as plastic surgery means remoulding or reshaping parts of the human body. And that has been recorded in ancient India and ancient Egypt as long ago as 3000 BC. Oh. The skill of plastic surgery is not new. It is very, very, very old. Repairing items such as a broken nose or restoring damaged ears after a battle to an acceptable shape. They stitch them. They somehow managed to recreate by careful means of replacement, a bit of flesh here, a bit of stitching there. They gave it a go. Well, they succeeded because they were famous for it. Medical men from other nations travelled to the Orient hundreds of years ago to study how this was being done. And the first event of what we now think of as plastic surgery in our kind of thinking was carried out in Britain in 1815. Now, in early times, surgery of this nature was mostly seen assisting reform shapes which had gone wrong by nature or warfare, rather than cosmetic reasons. Now, the development of what we now regard as plastic surgery is very, very largely credited to the work of a New Zealander, the physician Sir Harold Gillies, who developed many of the techniques of modern facial surgery, caring for soldiers who were suffering from disfiguring injuries during World War One. Yeah, a wonderful, wonderful man. Absolutely who admired on all sides. Realised that the psychological drama of being so disfigured was just as important as, as physical. Well, of course, uh, psychological nightmare of having something about your ears, uh, head, nose. It didn't move into beauty and glamour until no. hundreds of years later. Although there were those South American tribes that, and they weren't the only ones, who changed the shape of people's heads by wrapping them. Yes. Because that was a seen to be fashionable or yes, status. True. There's um, binding of Chinese women's feet? Yes, none of that actually involves surgery, but you're absolutely right. Oh, I, I suppose mean, so. I mean, changing the body in order to follow some fashion is not mm. new at all. That's oh, been going start on. with piercing an ear. I mean, 
what about tattooing, shall yeah. we mention? Um, but no, we were talking Prince about... Albert's. <laughs> Prince Albert's. Prince Albert's. We were talking about plastic, which means shaping or yeah. moving. And, and I did zoology at university, and plastic's used a lot there as a word. Yes. Not as the substance. But a thing like um, mammals and mollusks are extremely plastic forms. Yes. Uh, a mammal, you can think of an aardvark and think of a blue whale. I often think of a blue whale. <laughs> they are two mammals, but just look at how different they are. Yes, well... <laughs> and, and mollusks, you can look at a pippy or an octopus. Plastic forms. A mouse and a blue whale. Both mammals. There you go. Uh, yes. Okay. This was heard on television. I think it was on the History Channel and was sent through. Have a listen. The artefacts recovered offer us fascinating clues about life in Shakespeare's theatres. These are purpose-built venues and you had to go through a door and pay money and this is what you paid. You paid a penny to get in to the main door so you could stand in the centre or you could pay another penny to get into the galleries around the edge and a third one to sit at the top where you get the best view. So they all went into one of these ceramic money boxes of which we've just got the lids, like piggy banks. So they've got a little slot in the side where the coin's going to go. And at the end of the day, they would have gone back to the sort of management area, if you like, which is where they were smashed. That's why we have the pieces. And the whole lot, all the money, emptied into a box. And that's the box office. And is that where we get the term box office from, then? These, Absolutely, these yes, yes. Tudor theatres? Yes. OK. We're simply checking with Max because we don't take someone's gabbering on the TV's word for it. How did theatres get the term box office? Is this correct? Well, it, there's a fragile belief that the term box office derived from the Elizabethan theatre in the late 1500s, and that version will tell you that theatre admission price was collected in a box attached to a long stick passed around the audience. And some versions of the story have made that box from ceramic, so when the collecting your cash was finished, the so-called box was broken and the money counted out. Now, alas, this explanation doesn't hold up very well once you scratch the surface and start investigating, which is <laughs> what I spend my days doing, because this explanation didn't emerge until 1786, ah. which was 200 years after the 1500s. And so that explanation, I'm sorry to tell that person, is no longer taken seriously. Um, there is another explanation which is somewhat more believable believable. In early times, early centuries, the ground floor of a theatre was standing room only and was often called the pit. It had cheap entry, everyone paid the same, but later one floor above that sat folk of higher rank or fortune in individual seating groups separated with a little wall each side of each group. And each of those little enclosures was known as a box. And there were quite a number of them side by side in the theatre. Now, entry to that area, to one of those boxes in the row of boxes, had a higher price, which was administered by and collected at an office responsible for collecting admission fees for the boxes. Hence, it was called a box office. Now, over time, theatres developed seating in all levels, even ground level still now had seats, next layer up had seats, next layer up had seats. But the place where you bought and sold the tickets to sit within your own little enclosure, once only for the rich, now involved anyone who bought a seat in any part of the theatre. 
and the selling point retained its original name of Box Office. Now, gradually, over many years, surfacing in the early 1900s, the term box office moved in towards being an expression of how much had been earned or not earned at the ticket-selling box office. A play or a theatre season, so the success or non-success of a play or a star, was referred to as good box office or not good box office. That extended beyond theatre to the cinema, where certain movie subjects or movie performers could be perceived as good box office, meaning movies on those themes or starring a particular person sold a lot of tickets in the little box which sold tickets. Some movies and some actors may be referred to as not good box office. Their appeal is um, limited. But to this day, many of the world's great theatres still have discreetly enclosed seating with walls either side, which are called boxes, usually one each side of the main dress circle. Um, and there's an interesting story about that which always amuses me. Those seats on, in the dress circle to the right and the left have a little wall around them, left and right, and mm. they are often called the Royal Box. Yeah. And once a year, there is a big, big concert in London called the Variety, the uh, Nat National Variety Show, and the Queen, the Royal Family, attends it. And there was one lovely incident... It's just the proms? No, 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 not oh, okay. at all. No, sorry. No. no, and there was one lovely incident one year when, when it was all over, the Royal Family get out of the Royal Box and they go down on the stage and are introduced to the people, performers. And on one occasion... Somebody in the show who'd been in a dance routine said to the Queen that um, she hoped that the Queen had enjoyed the dance number. And the Queen said, well, yes, we did, but from the royal box you get a rather wonky view. Lovely. <laughs> I always quite liked the Queen for saying that. <laughs> She'd just love to be centre. She'd preferred to be, would have been the centre. Maybe in the stalls. Yes, but the royal box is on the far left or the far right That's in most right. theatres. Yeah. And there's, there is also... Abraham Lincoln would have preferred the stalls. Yes. And, and strangely enough, although we've been talking theatre and cinema, box office meaning success or not success cannot refer to television. Uh, Think about that. Right. Television, success of television can only be registered by the commercials. Yeah. Which how many people watch it? Well, well how, there how are many subscribers. People, how many people pay to have commercials yeah. on it? Yeah. So that's hardly the same as box office. Yeah. Okay. Although there is the television station home box office, you pay for that. Yes. To not have ads. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. that's exactly the use of the phrase box yeah. office. You pay to watch the entertainment. All right. Uh, look, it's fascinating so far, but folks, I think it's just going to get better <laughs> when we return. <laughs> when you go and put to put fuel in your car, the strange array of words that can be used for that substance you put in the tank. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Here he is, Max Cryer, and oh, I'm looking forward to this. I've particularly wondered about some words for the fuel one puts in your regular car. Well, 
you've done, just done something really very clever by using the word fuel. And this whole problem, because it is a problem, would be solved if people would only listen and do that. If they would say fuel all the time, then Why? there wouldn't be any sort of confusion. Oh. But the words petrol, benzene and gas, which is what I've been asked about. Mm. Benzene um, kind of antiquated. Haven't, haven't heard it in a while. But my mm. dad used to say, oh, I've got to go down the road and put some benzene in the car. Yes, well, this is the thing. You see, the words change over time and gas has various meanings. Gas, it's not a gas. You're no, putting not, in this liquid. No, it's not a gas, you see. Most of us call it a gas so station. Let us say that, that Graham Hill has invented and maintains the word fuel. It was my only option that didn't use the words that were in the question. Well, the words in the question were benzene, gas. Uh, so we start with, um, we say the fluid for keeping motor engines going is referred to by various names. The basis of most of these fluids is petroleum. And that's the name of a raw crude oil coming out of the ground. And some crude oils can be refined into a fluid which is correctly called gasoline, spelled I-N-E, gasoline, often shortened to just gas. Now, usage among vehicle drivers have narrowed petroleum into petrol, which isn't really accurate because petroleum is the original unrefined crude oil, which in its original crude state couldn't power a car. Right, and so, petro from rocks. So shortening gasoline into just gas is a bit unfortunate because gasoline is a fluid and the word gas by itself is legitimately naming hydrocarbons like methane, propane and butane, which actually are gas. A complication, and there are several, is that besides cars running on fluid gasoline, there are now also cars running off natural gas. The terms petrol and gas have become so ingrained in their respective countries that they're accepted by virtually all, then there is your father's phrase, benzene, which is a distillation of petroleum largely used in the manufacture of plastics like polystyrene. But it was also present sometime in the making of gasoline to increase the octane rating. This was about the 1950s. And people sometimes used this name, benzene, when they meant petrol or gas. But when suspicion arose that benzene caused what were described as negative health effects, it was phased out or reduced by law to 1% in some countries and 0.62% in other countries. So there's really no solution to the matter. If only people would say fuel... There's no, there's no problem. You can use whatever word you like. Yes, you can. But as you pointed out, if you said gas to a pedantic person in a, in a service station, he'd say, well, we don't put gas into cars. Oh, but that would be the most <laughs> annoying person of the day. I know. But it's the answer to the question, though. You can't put gas into a car to make it work. <laughs> All right. So benzene's got nothing to do with Mercedes-Benz? No. Oh, far out. Also, something from... A documentary about wartime. Here we are. Well, we certainly weren't going to be beaten. And everybody got into the swing of it. Uh, all prominent buildings were being sandbagged. Everybody was digging slip trenches or putting up An Anderson shelters. It was a tremendous period. The whole country was, was mobilised almost overnight. OK, an Anderson shelter. What on earth? 
New Zealanders are lucky enough not to know what that was and not to need knowing what it was and not to have ever heard of it, unless, of course, they're actually of British origin who've come to live in New Zealand after World War II. They were a very important part of the effect World War II had on Britain. The origin that Anderson Shelter dated to 1939 before the World War had actually started. Britain's equivalent to the New Zealand Department of Internal Affairs is called the Home Office, and they saw trouble ahead. So in 1938, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain placed a man called Sir John Anderson in charge of future air raid precautions. Anderson worked with an engineer called William Patterson and they designed a small, inexpensive air raid shelter that people could build in their garden. The first was built in 1939 in London and it was named after Sir John Anderson. Now, before World War II actually started, there were one and a half million Anderson shelters built for people in areas that were at risk of being bombed when the war was going to begin. Over the course of the war, over two million more Anderson shelters were built, free to people who couldn't afford them, or seven pounds for people who could. Now, the shelters were made of six corrugated steel panels curved and bolted together at the top. They were extremely strong, they held six people, and where possible, the shelters were buried up to a metre down into the ground. Now, during the war, British bombings on German cities killed about 500,000 people, but because of the Anderson shelters in Britain, German bombs on Britain killed 90% less than that number. Only 50,000 people died. Why the Germans build a Anderson und Anderson oh, Schalterhalten? Because they're Germans and they never thought of it. Oh, Max. <laughs> so when the war was over, many shelters were dug up and people used them for garden sheds. I see, an Anderson shelter. Good on Anderson. There, the Brits, they got going. What? Well, yes, they always do. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to a speech by Winston Churchill the other day and he says... The French minister said the important battle that England seems to win is the last one. (laughs) Yes, he did. That's right. I remember that quote. (laughs) Okay. There are so many words that the Eskimos have for snow. And people go, wow, isn't that amazing? Eskimos or Inuit, whatever, you got nothing on the English language and the words for drunk. That's true. There are many, many words for drunk. (laughs) Drunk is just the beginning, but what what the listener asked about was the word plastered. (laughs) How does that... I can't even see any association. Why would you be plastered? Well, it's it's difficult. It's not one of the ones that has a clear, simple answer. It's one of the many words used to describe drunk. Nobody I can consult can form an image or a connection. Why? Exactly why? Uh, A plastered wall, a plastered ceiling or front steps in no way appear to be drunk. But it's certainly true that it's one of the words that is used. The expression plastered has been in use since 1902. The most diligent of researchers cannot come up with a 100% guaranteed explanation of why drunkenness is compared to a dining room wall, but there are three explanations which have been put forward. There's no guarantee which of these three is the truth. Number one, the inside walls of houses in Britain, in the UK, built in the 1950s, were finished off to a very smooth surface by tradesmen known as plasterers. Now, many of those workmen were Irish, 
and they had a reputation for heavy drinking. Once they'd been paid, they were unlikely to show up for work again until the money had gone, sobriety had come back, and to the great frustration of the contractor. It is suggested that the term plastered arose during that era, but there's no actual proof. Theory number two, this is the one that is more widely believed. The expression is related to the medical practice of putting a plaster over a wound. In this circumstance, a medical plaster is intended to soothe the wound and protect you from further pain. So that theory suggests that drunkenness is a medicated state where you are happy to be protected from pain. You are plastered. Listeners, he's snarling and making rude noises. Number three. Number three. This is an explanation which has been put forward. It isn't proven, neither are any of them. This is the least pleasant. Somebody truly, definitely drunk is likely to perform what is politely known as a technicolor yawn. Oh. In other words, a projectile vomit, which, if they're standing near a wall, is like the wall being plastered. (laughs) But I can't vouch for any of those three. I can vouch for the fact that they exist. The explanations exist, but they've all got a question mark next to them. I actually counted there are over 200 other suggestions available. Oh. But the truth is... How long have we got, Max? (laughs) The truth is, and I hate these two words... 198. I hate these two words, but the answer, Graham, is nobody knows. Right. Plastered. It's still commonly used, though, isn't it? Indeed. Dutch courage also on the theme of alcohol and its effects. Well, when someone is perceived as facing something needing temporary strength of purpose, that person might need Dutch courage, meaning for a short while to feel temporarily brave, some help might come from an alcoholic drink or two. Why is that called Dutch courage? Well, it's a relic of a time when the relations between Britain and the Netherlands were at a very low point. In the 1600s, both nations were powerful seekers of global empires and they were intense rivals. Because of this rivalry, there arose sayings invented by the English as a put-down of the Dutch. Dutch treat was based on the English observation that Dutch were very well organised financially and not given to reckless extravagance qualities which are seen now as virtues but interpreted then as being uh, mean. Hence you had the scenario that if a Dutchman invited you to a meal or a drink then you went but you paid for yourself. I'm speaking hundreds of years ago in case anybody Dutch is listening because this is some evil vibes between England and Holland which no longer exist. The saying remains Dutch treat but it has instead of being a put down it's actually now a social custom which is not meant to be mean at all. Quite graceful and sensible. Many of the anti-Dutch sayings have faded but a couple survive. Dutch courage means false courage brought about by alcohol because the Dutch people were put down as being too fond of the bottle which simply isn't true. Dutch courage, as a term, dates back 350 years when English soldiers were fighting in the Anglo-Dutch wars. There grew a belief that the English soldiers noticed that the Dutch soldiers were enhancing their courage before battle with a Dutch-invented drink called Genever, which was later known as gin. So the belief exists that the English soldiers also acquired this new drink, Geneva, to drink before battle because of its calming effect, and then it became known as Dutch courage, brought on by the alcohol of what we now call gin. 
gin being the English version of the Dutch Geneva, which is where gin comes from. William of Orange became King William of England, and he was actually Dutch. He was invited in. The English were pleading. And he brought something with him that created um, a great effect in England, otherwise known as gin. By the 1700s, gin was widely available in London, but the term Dutch courage remained quietly in use, meaning, quote, a false temporary confidence gained by drinking alcohol. There's a few of those sayings in English which were meant to be a put-down of Dutch 100 years ago, and the only one or two um, survive. A Dutch auction goes backwards, and that's no longer an insult. That's done quite commonly. Mm. Double Dutch was originally the put-down named for any language an Englishman didn't understand. That's all Greek to me. And the one which started as a put-down but has become quite pleasant is Dutch Treat, where people are gathered to dine together but all pay their own bill. Yeah, OK. So August it was James II, wasn't it? The, the English got sick of James II because he went all Catholic. And then they invited in the Dutch. And that from then on, I don't think there's been a problem between Britain and, no, and the Dutch, has no, there? No, no, it was all sure. like, thanks very much. You're really no, quite course, nice people. Course, um, very tall, great volleyballers. And there was a, The Dutch? They're the tallest nation on earth. Tallest? Yeah, apparently so, on average, tallest nation on earth. And I've always wondered, because they live in such low lands, it floods a lot, maybe it was an evolutionary thing, and only the tall ones could keep their heads above the water when the dike broke. And all the Ronnie Corbett's floated out into the North Sea. <laughs> Except that he survived. And didn't, well, in England he did, because he was on higher ground. He well, needed I'm... to be. All right, all yours, August Max. the 18th. August yep. the 18th. We've never in New Zealand had a House of Lords. Never. But in 1852, the government of New Zealand organised what was called a Constitution Act, whereby the House of Representatives appointed ten people to a lifetime position in an upper house of parliament called the Legislative Council. Now, that could amend or eject bills passed in the ordinary parliament. This system and this balance of power remained for 98 years until 1950, and the National Party didn't agree with that balance of power. So on August the 18th, 98 years ago today, the National Government voted out the Upper House Legislative Council and its privilege of permanent membership. Oh, okay. Max, fabulous as always, and if you want to ask Max something for the inbox, just go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's an email form there. Uh, You can leave a message on Facebook, and the other method is good old mail, P.O. Box. What is it, Max? Did you put up the sign yet? Have you put up the sign yet? You're the one that knows the box number. Triple eight. You were going to put the sign up for me. You were going to put the sign up. You've had ages. (laughs) P.O. Box. Triple eight zero Simon Street, Auckland. Okay, get your vivid marker out, Max. We need that sign up.